You're listening to your financial planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome to episode 78 with Patrick Darty. That's right, one of the original founders of the You're a Financial Planner Now What Live sessions, and my long term mentor is our guest this week to close out 2017. Patrick has never had an issue with clients implementing their financial plans, and he shares this approach, and I promise you, you'll leave rethinking the way that you approach client relationships. We'll talk about the power of planning, how to help your clients achieve their best life, and how to communicate your value as a new financial planner. We want to also give you a heads up that the FPA NextGen Gathering registration is opening on January 15th for FPA members, and the scholarship deadline, i.e. free money, is January 9th. This year's gathering will be at the University of California, Santa Barbara, June 24th to 26th. The cost is $209 for FPA members and $259 for non-FPA members. This conference always sells out, so you need to buy your ticket right away, otherwise you could miss out. There is no other conference that you can attend at that price point. Not only is it a great deal, it is one of the best conferences that I've attended, and the conversations that I've had at gathering have without a doubt shaped my career. If you haven't been, this is a must-attend event. Visit our website in the show notes for more information. Here's the interview. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Well, I'm glad to be here. One of the, the founders of the Your Financial Planner Now What <laughs> series. So one, there's been a couple um, sessions that you did that were just really impactful for me when I first started out. And I know we were talking before about hopefully having you on for more of those later. But the one I want to talk about today is how to um, affect implementation. So I, first of all, why is this an important topic? What, or why, what, what, what are your thoughts on why this is important? Or why new planners need to know this? Well... I believe, you know, a perfect plan doesn't mean anything if it's not implemented. So, you know, if it's worthless and it's just an academic exercise. It may feed the ego of the planner, but it does nothing for the client. So I believe you, you have to learn how to, you know, affect your clients to implement your plans. And I think that starts way before the, the, the plan presentation meeting. So... I was at a study group several years ago with some really senior planners. And we were talking about, you know, what challenges we face and everything. And, and the big, it seemed the big uh, thing they were having in common is they couldn't get their clients to implement their plans. And I guess that I've been in the business eight or nine years at that point. And so I, that was shocking to me that these senior planners were still having this challenge. You know, after most of them had a decade or more in the business. And so I started thinking about, how I had achieved that, which I still believe almost all my plans are implemented completely, is how did that happen? And I think it's because, you know, I've always been taught, you know, perfection is impossible, but excellence is not. And how do you shoot for excellence? It's by, uh, I do post-ops. Every time I have a plan presentation or a meeting, I do a post-op and I ask myself two things, what to keep and what to change. And Every time I, you know, my first eight or nine years in the business, there was a lot of, you know, what to change and very little about what to keep. So over the years, it started getting more and more what to keep, and a little less and less what to change. And probably eight or nine years into it, I started realizing that everybody was implementing my plan recommendations. And so it wasn't easy. And I, you know, took a decade to find out how to do that. But I realized that, you know, you can't wait till the meeting where you present the plan. You know, it has to start way before that. 
And now I even believe it starts when you have the initial conversation with the, the prospect over the phone. Somebody refers them to you or you somehow meet them at a, you know, present, uh, an event or something. So they call you and you talk about, you know, you're trying to qualify them. And they say, so what do we bring to our first meeting? And most of the time they say, do we bring our statements? You know, because that's what most people ask them to bring. And I say, no, no, don't bring your statements. Don't bring, you know, anything but yourself. Because I believe to have the client accept your recommendations, I think there's four key things. They have to believe that financial planning will help them. And they have to believe, or, uh, excuse me, they have to have confidence in your technical ability. They have to have assurance of your insight into their goals and challenges. And then finally, and the big one is they have to trust your motives. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you recommending what you're recommending? You know, is it to help you or to help them? So I believe those four things, belief, confidence, assurance, and trust is you have to have that with all the clients and it's something you can't do. You know, most people just have a discovery meeting and then plan presentation meeting. How do you expect somebody you've never met before to accept all your recommendations after they've met with you twice? So, Well, one thing that I like, and, and again, I know you kind of <laughs> more than um, some, but you say that belief that financial planning will help them. So when you're really positioning yourself and like when you're selling to clients, you're selling financial planning instead of selling anything else. Yes. So, and yeah. Well, I found that most planners... I'm not sure they believe planning is powerful. You know, they a lot of times they, they pick it as a profession. They go to college, they graduate, they get in the business, and they get their CFP. But do they really believe how powerful it is? I believe it's really powerful. You can change people's lives permanently for the better through planning. So I always say to people, if, if the planner doesn't believe it, why is the client going to believe it's real? You know, so... If you really believe the, in the power of planning, it's going to come across, you know, in your enthusiasm and how you talk about it, then the client believes it. So that's the first thing you have to do is get them to believe that what you're going to do with them over the next two months is going to change their lives and help them, you know, get rid of some of the challenges they face and help them achieve their goals and help their kids go to college and all the things that planning does for them. But they've got to believe that you believe it. What would be your advice for new planners as they're entering uh, financial planning today? I guess I'm... I'm I'm trying to narrow it down so I can yeah. give you an answer in less than an hour. <laughs> what? I have a lot of advice to give planners but <laughs> about growing their practice or getting into the business or surviving financially or learning to be better planners. Or what better what planners. are you talking about? Let's talk better planners. Okay. Better planners is knowing that you don't know everything. Uh, when I when I passed the CFP exam, and I didn't pass it the first time, I didn't take it seriously, didn't study. So, so when I did pass it, I walked out of the exam, you know, Probably at every planner, that's at the height of their technical uh, knowledge when they pass the exam, right? It never goes higher than that easily. So I left the exam thinking, you know, I just passed it, or when I got the note in the mail saying, it was in the mail when I took it, um, I got the note in the mail saying I'd passed. I thought, you know, I just passed this big CFP exam that says I'm halfway competent to be a planner, and I feel like I know about 30% of what I really need to know to be a good planner. So I need to start learning, you know. <laughs> But now, in my 19th year in the business, I still feel like I know only about 30% of what I need to know to be a good planner. So I think my advice to young planners is uh, you need to have a thirst for this business and a thirst to be better at what you're doing. And I'll, always do your post-op and say, what can I keep and what can I change? Whether it's a meeting with a client or a meeting with a mentor or meeting with whoever you're meeting with, you need to always think, how can I do this better? 
you know, if you have that kind of thirst for, you know, excellence and to learn how to do this, you know, I still have a list of designations I want to work for. You know, I, I just, not only do I enjoy doing it, but I think I need to do it to be good for my clients. So uh, hopefully you have a thirst for knowledge about our profession. One of the things I took away from you um, a couple years ago was it was this idea of when you have prospects come into your office, they need to leave that even if they don't work with you, they have to work with a financial planner. Like that's how deep the conviction needs to be yeah. in what I'm communicating with clients. Yes. And, you know, it might not be a fit. We're not always a fit for each other's maybe personalities or whatever reason, you know. Uh, some ch planners charge more, some planners charge. So there's a lot of reasons for you, for a client to choose you or not. But, you know, you want them to believe they need to find somebody. So, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so yeah, first you have to believe in the power of planning so the client will believe in it. And then the technical prowess, uh, you know, you get the standard stuff like education, you know, your certifications, your, you know, I've got my ego all behind me, your experience in the business, the brand name of your firm sometimes. But the big one for me is do you intentionally and actively educate your clients during the planning process? Does the client see you as a technical, uh, does the client see the technical knowledge coming out of your head? Now that sounds kind of silly, but, you know, you can't do that with a PowerPoint presentation, you know, because half the time that's put together by somebody else and you're just kind of reading through it. And they know that. They can tell that. So it's not with PowerPoint. It's not with what-if scenarios with planning software. You know, when the client sees you draw on a legal pad or on a whiteboard, they see that knowledge coming out of your head. That's what builds, you know, their uh, confidence in your technical prowess. So there's no shortcut around that. And you can't just meet with somebody and, you know, even if they sign up and give you a check, they still don't know if you're technically you know, competent or not. So the way I do that is through education mostly. Obviously, I have my education, so certifications, all that, but but I wouldn't need any of them at this point because the way I educate my clients, they know that I know what I'm doing. And there's no shortcut for that. So and then the third, how they are they assured of your insight into them? Well, it's because you, first, you listen more than you talk, you know, ask a lot of questions, um, ask big open-ended questions, and then shut up and let them talk. You know, so... So they understand that you're really caring about them, what they're doing and why they're doing it. And you're learning about their families and kids. And, you know, most families have warts. Most families have problems. You know, you need to understand them. You know, I always uh, talk to my clients about, you know, when this is done, I'm going I'm to know more about you than your doctor, you know. And uh, because I'm going to spend more time with you and ask more questions. And, and I need to do that to help you, you know, do this correctly. And then the, finally, the last one is how they trust you. How do you how do you say to somebody you can trust me you know so uh, and it's not by using the fiduciary word you know I personally have a higher bar than that and so you know whatever your higher power or your moral compass whatever moral compass guides you uh, it needs to be apparent in the way you treat your clients you know every interaction starting with the first phone conversation so. Well, it's this whole idea. I mean, I hear people use fee only as a marketing ploy, and mm -hmm. and people are using fiduciary in the same way. It's like that's. That's, it feels, I don't want to say shallow, but it feels, it doesn't hold water. Well, it's canned. Here, here's the question I, people that want to use, you know, they say they're fiduciaries and they even have a certification now for being a fiduciary. Here's my question that I would say to a client. I'm required by law to, to be a fiduciary so you can trust me. That's what you're saying. When you say I'm a fiduciary, that means you've agreed and signed, you know, saying I'm going to act as a fiduciary because the law requires me to. That's pretty sad, you know.
well, it's not talking about who you are no. and this idea of that we need to show up as planners and that's just yeah a legalese term rather than like I will always act in your best interest. Yeah. Yes. So do you bring up fiduciary with your clients? I've never used the word ever. No. But I can tell you that they really believe that I act that way, you know, because I act that way. And so the way I talk to them, the way I ask them questions, the way I, uh, if they ask me a question, this happens with every client I have. They ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And I say, I don't know the answer to that. I'll do some research and find out. Rather than BS my way through it and give them an answer. So, you know, people like it when you, uh, when you are vulnerable. You know, so I don't know everything. And sometimes I'll make a mistake with a client's account. The first thing I do is call the client and say, oh, I made this mistake, just want to let you know about it. Here's what I can do to fix it. But I just want to let you know immediately that I made this mistake. And they go, oh, well, thanks for telling us. We wouldn't have known. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, they realize that, you know, you really care about, you know, doing the right thing. You know, the marketing term that I've really come to understand recently is you show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so much of the fiduciary is we're telling you what we're going to do instead yeah. of just showing them what we're going to do and, and really, yeah, articulating it, our value that way instead of just. Yeah. So let me tell you where, where I believe the uh, achieving full implementation starts. It starts with the very first uh, prospect call. So, you know, you're trying to, in the qualifying call, you're trying to decide if somebody you want to work with. You know, it may be a personality issue. It may be, you know, you may have minimums. Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons you may choose or, or not choose to work with somebody. You know, one of my main criteria is if they weren't a client, would I want to have dinner with them? You know, I don't want to work with somebody that I don't have that kind of uh, connection with. So, and I actually do often have dinner with most of my clients. But, but that's, that's, you know, I want to have that kind of relationship with them where we, we're comfortable with each other and we enjoy being around each other, not just because we're doing a plan. So, uh, so in the phone call, you know, they generally say, what do you bring to the meeting? And I say, don't bring anything with yourselves. I'm going to bring a pen and a legal pad. And here's what we're going to do in the meeting. We want to learn about you, your family, your goals, your dreams, what you want to do with your kids, your careers, um, you know, when you want to retire, how do you want to retire, and what are your challenges in, in achieving all that? So that should, you know, take about an hour, hour and a half. You know, I always plan two hours for an initial meeting. And this is the prospect meeting. This isn't a discovery meeting. This is where you're deciding to work together or not. So after you learn about them a lot, then we tell them what we do, why we do what we do, how we do it, and then what we charge, what our fees are, how we're going to be compensated. So completely transparent on all that. And that's what the meeting's for. And finally, and I tell them this over the phone before meeting, we're not going to sign anything in the first meeting. You know, all we're going to do is you know, get to know each other. I'm going to learn about you. You're going to learn about us and how much we charge and, you know, how we do that for the fears or commissions or whatever. And there's no right or wrong way on that. It's just, you know, they need to know that up front. As long as you're, you know, disclose it, I don't think it matters. You know, I personally, if I wanted to hire a planner, it wouldn't matter whether they're a fee or commission. You know, if there was somebody that I trusted and I believe them, you know, they can charge me however they want to. And they did a survey last year that, uh, Ask clients, you know, how their clients, how their advisor charged them. Sixty-five percent said, "I have no idea." That's how unimportant it is. Mm -hmm. You know, if they believe you and think you're doing a good job for them, they could care less. You know, so they need you to make a living. You need to be there next year when you come when they come back. So there's nothing wrong with you know making a living. We say we're not going to sign anything. You know, at the end of the meeting, uh, we want you to go home, sleep on it. We're going to uh, sit as a, as a firm and discuss whether you all are fit for us. 
you know, so it's real important for us both to feel like it's, you know, mutually beneficial. So when you tell them, and I tell them all this over the phone. So when they come in for the first meeting, it does a couple of things. I think they're not apprehensive, not afraid you're going to, you know, trying to get them to sign something or, or, you know, do a hard sell. But the other thing is it makes them think, we got to convince him to take us as a client. So it actually helps you as a planner. You know, they're, they're not defensive. And also, if they think, you know, they were referred to you and they think you're good, they're going to try to convince you. So it's kind of a mutually beneficial thing to come in with no expectations, you know. And, you know, they shouldn't hire us if we're not a fit. And I don't want a client that's not a fit. So, you know, it's really important for that. And sometimes I've met with uh, people I really like, but for whatever reason, the way we worked or the way we charged or whatever, it wasn't a fit. So I've referred them to one of my fellow, you know, colleagues, you know, friendly competitors. And I have most of them that I know are friendly competitors. But, you know, if it's a fit for the for the client, then I'm glad they go somewhere else. Do you find that in this first meeting, um, you're having people who aren't qualified to okay. be your client show up? So, yeah, I usually can find out in the qualifying call whether they're a fit or not for us with the minimums. But uh, so occasionally it doesn't happen. So we get together and we meet, and I find out that they don't really, and I don't really have an assets under management uh, minimum, uh, more of a revenue minimum. Because I charge separately for uh, assets under management and for planning, uh, they may not have the asset minimums that normally I would want, but they do have a lot of uh, big, complex planning to do. So their their you know their fee for me uh, might be the same as somebody that had a million or two million dollars, even though they have you know two hundred fifty thousand. So for me, it's a revenue uh, minimum, not asset minimum. So, but to answer your question completely, uh, if they don't meet our um, our minimums. We we uh, have people we can refer them to. I think I've referred people to you before. You know, so you want them to be taken care of, and you're you're helping them by not taking them if that's the case. Because if they're a small client, generally they don't need the kind of complex planning that I generally do. So you know, if they're a young couple just getting started, they don't need complex estate planning. You know, they need a will. You know, so uh, they may maybe will uh, life insurance. You know, make sure they have enough for that because they have a couple of kids, and then the education planning. It's kind of simple. So, you know, they need to be with somebody that, that is good at that, but they don't need to overpay me because I charge more. I do more complex planning with my experience and everything. I charge more. Why would I want to overcharge them when they don't need that level? You know, I have planners in the business, that your friends that are two and three years in the business, you know, have their CFPs. They're going to do an excellent job for them. And for that planner, they're a big client. So the, that person is better off being served by that person than me, you know. And, and generally, like, uh, I don't even know anything about Medicaid, or, you know, because I don't have any clients that use it. So if it's a retired couple that needs Medicaid, you know, information, I have no idea, you know, because I've never had a client that needed it. You know, it's funny being the consumer on several things now. I've and maybe being a little bit pickier than I have been in the past. I mean, that's a filter for me now. Like, am I this service providers in either target market or are they going to drop me in a couple of years or hand me off to somebody else? Because I. I that you want, I want to be paired with somebody where I am exactly who they're looking to serve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to discuss my planning process because that's maybe another you know uh, talk. But but I do want to mention the parts of it, the, my process that influence the clients uh, implementing the plan. So in the discovery meeting, um, you know you certainly you're gonna have that big conversation, you know, about what they want to achieve and how to achieve it and everything. And, and that's part of them realizing that you're really trying to learn, gain, gain insight into them so you can help them, you know, in the right way. 
and in the course of client education meeting, uh, my board, my I have an advisory board that said, "Don't call it that. Call it uh, investment concepts." Was client education is demeaning, but I don't agree with that. But I've, I've taken their advice. But anyway, you need to educate your clients. So in my client education meeting, I use a whiteboard and I just talk to them about you know these are basic concepts and some of them pertain to you and some of them don't. But I do that either on legal pad or a whiteboard. And they again, it's building trust in my in my uh, acumen, you know, my technical acumen. So that's really important for the client, and it's really important for me because uh, they ask questions. You know, uh, you need to know what level your clients are at as far as their ability and education about investing and planning. And so, by doing through this education meeting and you know teaching, um, then you can both understand where you're both at. So uh, the plan presentation part is. Uh, it's a brief. I usually do a brief summary of their goals and challenges. It takes about 15 minutes, and then uh, talk about the recommendations. And along with the recommendations, I don't use a list. Um, I use a, a first-year implementation plan. So, so the client now, I believe, has the belief that planning is going to help them. They have the confidence in your ability. They have the assurance that you're trying to help them, you know, learn, you've gotten the insight into them, and then they have hopefully learned to trust your motives. So, you know, it's like the breakfast participants uh, little thing. The chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. You know, so you want your clients to feel committed you know, to this process. <laughs> so hopefully by doing this, you know, and having several meetings, you know, I, some people have the first meeting and the presentation meeting. Mine are anywhere from four to six meetings, you know, depending on the client and the complexity of it. But... So when I give them the plan presentation and uh, I give them the, I don't give them the to-do list, I give them a Gantt chart. It's a, it's just a one-page uh, Excel spreadsheet and I have the next 12 calendar months on there, a calendar with the next 12 months on it. And the sheet basically says what we need to do, when we need to do it, and then the action is going to be performed by the client, the planner, allied professional, or all of the above. So it really is just kind of this, you know, Here's our action plan going forward. And it's real simple. And it, sometimes if you give somebody a list, it's real long and your eyes glaze over. But if you give them this calendar saying in the first month, because you have young children and you not enough life insurance, we're going to meet with the insurance professional. In the second month, you know, maybe estate planning or maybe flip, depending on if you have an older client and, you know, the situation is different. But so every month or so we do one or two things to implement their plan. And hopefully, usually it's six to eight months later, we're done you know, with the initial implementation. Some clients has taken 14 months, but for the most part, it's five to six, seven, eight. So one of the things I've been hearing a lot of in the circles that I run um, are these new planners who are trying to do more of this monthly retainer model or something like that. And one of the problems that they're having is they do all of this work up front for the client, like you're saying, over, you know, six to nine months. And then all of a sudden the client's like, well, I don't need you anymore. And they drop, drop you. Hmm. I, I know you well enough to know that you don't have that problem. <laughs> well, that, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I know uh, younger planners and I also know some of the really big firms in Dallas whose names you would know, really big firms that work with $25, $50 million clients, they do it that way too. They do modular planning. They start, you know, and they maybe do investments first because a lot of people think that's what's most important, which it isn't. But uh, so they do it that way and, and that's not a wrong way to do it, but... I go back to the original question that every new planner should ask and understands if you don't know everything about this client, then how do you give them good advice, whether it's estate planning or whether it's investments, 
How do you know how to do that? I have no idea how to invest for a client if I had not a comprehensive plan. I don't. Want, I can't work in a vacuum. And it may be simple. You may. It may look like that. You know, they're young and can be more aggressive, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But you don't know about their mother who's going to need their help in two years. You know, you don't know about uh, somebody in family members. You know, maybe has uh, medical needs that nobody knows about, or you don't know about certainly. So. I just don't know how you do modular planning and, and serve the client well. So have you ever run into the problem where a client's like, you know what, I completely oh. buy into the idea of financial planning. I've built out this financial planning and now I don't need you anymore. I'll come back when my life changes. Yeah. So that was the second part of your question I didn't answer. Um, so thanks for asking again. Um, if, if you do the planning right and ask the right questions and present the plan the right way, which means this is a dynamic process. Planning when you do the first initial comprehensive plan or whether it's modular, it's the very beginning of a lifelong process. And if you haven't educated your clients about the, the fact that this is a lifelong process, you know, my initial comprehensive plan, while it takes a month to two months to complete and you meet four or five times with the clients and you drive them crazy asking for all this information, the fact is you, it's the starting point. And if you haven't educated them about that throughout this whole process, so when you implement the plan, and again, my, my implementation plan is called first year implementation plan. This is the first of 20 or 50 years, depending on their age and how long you're going to be in the business. But so I generally don't have that problem because they know that, you know, things are going to change. The world's dynamic. Their lives are dynamic. So they're going to have kids and, you know, they're going to lose parents. So they're going to have parents that have to move in with them. There's all these things that happen to us that we have no plan, you know, have no idea it's going to happen. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, I think it's interesting, especially because most of these are talking about younger clients and it's like life changes the most when you're young. Yeah. <laughs> talking about job change, kids, you know, everything happening in life. Um, but the other thing, you sell people on the idea of financial planning and financial planning is not a one-time thing. So you're not leading with your price. You're not leading with you know, all these other things you're leading with. Here's the value of ongoing financial planning and here's why you need it. And even if they don't work with you, they're gonna, they need to work with somebody who does financial planning. And I think that's a whole different sales pitch. Great question and great statement. Um, I don't want to get into my process too much, but when I have my initial discovery, excuse me, my initial prospect meeting before we've signed up with each other, uh, after I've listened to them and learned everything I can in the first meeting about their family, then I explain what we do and how we do it. I go through real quickly through our processes, our fees are and everything. And by going through our process, it sounds kind of tedious and boring, but uh, I explained it. I used to explain it. I was real proud of my process. I would go through this eight or nine step thing. And I was real proud of it. But, you know, their eyes glazed over and they didn't hear any of it. Now, after listening to them for an hour, an hour and a half, when I present my process, I present it in how to solve their issues that they just told me about. Well, we're going to do this and it's going to help you with this issue. And we're going to do this part of our process. We do this. So, you know, I'm explaining my process through their challenges. And so they hear all of it, but they, they realize that how we're going to address their issues. So when I finish that, and it takes only five minutes, then I say, here's our fee schedule. And I have it printed out, and I show it to them. The response is, wow, we thought it would cost more than this. And I'm on the higher side of, in Dallas of the planning fees. But the reason they feel that way is when you explain all the stuff you're going to do and how you're going to solve their problems, or at least come up with a plan to start solving their problems, they're, they're thinking, wow, 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 big, big, all of a sudden, you know, how much is it going to cost? And then when you say it's $5,000, they go, oh my gosh, is that all? You know, so I believe it's the way you present it, not the price. Yep. 
you know, price uh, is only a price is only an issue when there's no no value. Yep. So. Can I go back to the implementation oh, yeah. when I present the Gantt Absolutely. chart? So the Gantt chart, again, I explained it's, it's the next 12 months on this timeline. And each month we take on a major, you know, implementation piece. Uh, you know, just getting what to do, when to do it, and the action, who's going to perform the action. But you're the quarterback. And this is where a lot of people say, you know, you need to hire an attorney and adjust your state plan. Okay, we'll call our attorney. Well, it never happens. So I asked them if they have an attorney they want to use, fine. Or if they don't, I recommend somebody. But I call the attorney and set up the appointment, even if it's their attorney. I'm the quarterback. And if, if your plans aren't being implemented, it's the planner's fault. So I contact their attorney, you know, and I plan the meeting. And I'm always in the meeting with them. Is it more work and extra hours? Yeah. But you've spent weeks or even months getting to know this family and learning about them. And the estate planning attorney you fill out their questionnaire and you go in to meet with them. They think they know how to, you know, provide your estate plan. You know, I've done that with clients early in my career. And they come back with trust they don't need. And they come back with just bad information because the estate planning attorney, they're, you know, they bill by the hour. And so they've got to make use of their time. And so they don't want to spend weeks with the clients like we do. You know, that's what we charge a fee for our plan. Then we meet with them whether it takes 10 hours or 50 hours. And so my average is 20 to 25 hours, you know, before, before I present the plan. Uh, so, so I think you should always meet with the allied professional and the, and, the, uh, and the client in you, whether it's an attorney or an insurance provider or whatever it is, you need to be in the meeting. If you're not committed to do that, you shouldn't be in the comprehensive planning business. So, you know, that's the way the, the plans get implemented. It's you're the quarterback, you've set up the meetings and the appointments. If they have an insurance provider, yes, and you know who it is, and say, let me set that appointment for you. They don't have time to do it, so they're happy for you to take that on. If they don't have an insurance provider, I provide one. But another thing I do is I always ask the provider to come into my office because you know the client sees you as handling everything and implementing the plan and helping them, you know, helping be the quarterback. So if a client needs uh, insurance, I don't want to send them to an agent who's going to say instead of me recommending a 20-year level term, the insurance agent goes, oh, you need a whole life policy. You know, so they're doing what's in their best interest, not your clients. So I explained to the client, because of the plan we're going to go through and all this, all this time we spent with the process, we all believe, you and me both, that you need term insurance. So I call three or four of my friends that are in the insurance business and I say, these are 45-year-old clients. Here's their birthdays. Here's their health, average general health. Uh, give me your best three plans. They come into our office with me and the client on one side of the table and the insurance provider on the other, and they present their plans, and I help the client pick the best one that's for them. So all of this is part of this implementation that uh, needs to happen, but you need to be involved. You know, it's not just giving them a list and having them do it. You know, one of the things I've realized is, you know, when clients sign up for financial planning and you were one of my big mentors, so I'm all about selling financial planning versus all the other stuff. Um, it's they, they're really committed to it. And I have the expectation that they're going to be in my office six times in the next year. And so they know where my office is. They feel comfortable in my office. And so when you start talking about, you know, attorneys and I've offered it up to, you know, we can meet at the attorney's office or we can meet at mine. And just about every single client is like, let's just meet at yours. They, it's familiar. It's consistent. It's, it's just part of this bigger um, service that you're providing and, and clients are drawn to that. 
Yeah, and we all like familiarity. You know, if you do something a lot, you get used to it and it's comfortable and you don't have to find out where the new office is or drive there. You know, you just know where you're going every time. The other thing is, this part of this implementation is, if it's a couple, I don't meet with them, one of them alone ever. Because it's, this is a group deal. And you can't expect to explain to one client, one person, and then them explain it to their spouse the right way. You know, so they both need to be there. And, and uh, the, the other things, often one or the other spouse is kind of the head. They do the financial stuff in the household. You know, sometimes it's the man, sometimes the woman. But, but they both need to know, be involved enough to know that if something happens to their spouse or if something happens their spouse is traveling in another country, they feel comfortable enough with the planner to come take care of it. You know, they go, oh, my husband's out, so I can't call Patrick because I've only met with him once. But if they're involved in the whole process, doesn't matter which spouse it is, the lead person financially or the not not the lead person, they both feel you know, they feel comfortable to call you. You know, so so that's another part about meeting in the office and you know, just familiarity that, that comes from several meetings. And I just don't think, you know, I don't think you can do it in two meetings. You know, I, I think you're doing a disservice to your clients and for yourself. So one of the new I don't even know if I can call it a trend anymore, but this idea of virtual planning and you know, meeting with your clients online. I mean, what are kind of your thoughts on that? Or I, maybe what, how I should focus that is, what are your thoughts on getting in that virtual environment, getting clients to implement? Uh, I don't think there's a right answer to that. Um, I certainly prefer to have a, an initial relationship face-to-face. Um, I understand, you know, expenses and flying and time and everything. You know, if somebody lives out of state, it's hard. I have a client, one of my uh, favorite long-term clients moved to uh, Arizona recently. And uh, we, you know, they're technology savvy, and I am too. So we, you know, we use we are our meetings usually through Skype, you know, and we've set up a, you know, a a, a server so that you know they can go online and get their their documents, and I can go online and get the documents. So we send them back and forth through the server, so we don't have to email or anything. But uh, we have great meetings. You know, we try to meet once face to face at least once a year. So that's what I say to my clients when they move or. So for whatever reason, if it's a new client, even in another, in another state that we just started working together, I always ask if we can do it face-to-face at the beginning. And then after we get, you know, everything, you know, situated, then I don't think there's a problem, you know, doing it long distance, you know. But I do try to do it once a year face-to-face. Sometimes they come here. Usually they come here, but sometimes I go to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the rest of your question, I guess, about virtual um, I think this is a relationship business. Now, if you're working with a, 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 a millennial, maybe they could care less whether they ever meet you. And I think if you're a millennial planner, that may be perfect for both of you. I probably wouldn't be a good fit for most millennials. You know, I have clients who have millennial children who um, we've talked about it. And I say, you know, I think they'd be more comfortable with XYZ and I'll, I'll refer them to a, a millennial planner I know. So. Part of it is, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, I don't think I would be comfortable with somebody I'd never met. You know, I don't think I would be as good a planner as I could get somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, it kind of goes back to what what is your service that you're you're providing? Them. Yeah. So you talked earlier about um, power of financial planning. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The power of financial planning really is depending on the client and what they need to have done for them. Sometimes it's helping them figure out how to afford their, their, their elderly parent who, 
who needs help, you know, but can't, uh, they can't stay in their own home, but they really can't afford to, you know, put them in a nursing home. So it's solving problems like that. Uh, that's powerful. You know, if you have somebody that, I'll give you an example of a client I met with probably, uh, I guess it was my sixth year in the business, fifth or sixth year. He was a TI executive and his wife was a full-time homemaker. And he was pretty high up and he'd been there for 25 years. And, and uh, so we came in and we did the plan. This is when I wasn't as good a planner as I am now, but I went through the normal process and then I presented the plan to them. They were really happy with it. I, I was feeling really confident. And as they're walking out of my office, they're in the lobby, I hear the, the man say to the woman, maybe I'm finally gonna be able to teach someday. And that word had never come up in our conversation that he wanted to be a teacher. So I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, come back here. So they come back in my office and what I had missed in my inadequate discovery process back then is that he really wanted to teach high school history. And he knew that you know he had this, the family obligations and to support his family and send his kids to school. So he never thought that he could do that until he was close to his regular retirement age. We had him retiring at 60, you know, in the plan. And uh, so he was planning to retire then and, and uh, get his certificate and start teaching history. And so, uh, and he's 50 years old at this time. So I, I, they came back in and we started talking about it. And that was his big goal, you know, and I had missed that completely. You know, I, I looked at his big job and his big paycheck and, okay, this is how much money you need to retire. So you can work until you're 60 and retire early at 60. And they, you know, they didn't realize the power of planning. And so they said, okay, you know. So he was accepting that. He had to wait until 10 years before he could retire. So when I heard that, we come back in and we, we looked at their plan again and we were able to make where he could retire at 52 and start teaching at 52 instead of 60. That's the power of planning. It completely changed his life. From being able to wait till he's, you know, probably almost to retirement, 60 years old, and you know, probably he's not much enthusiasm because he's older. But now he's going to retire in two years. He gets so now he's going to work on his certification, his uh, certification, get that ready. So in two years he's going to quit and be a high school teacher. So did he do that? Yes, yes. He's happily employed in the Dallas school system right now. And like, oh my gosh, could I please have a person like that teach my kids? Yeah, yeah. He loves history and the kids, I'm sure his students love him, you know, because he brings it to life for them. You know, he, he pulled out a coin to me one day. He said, I saw this coin one day and I, I wondered, it was dated 1896. And he said, where has this coin been? Who held this coin in their pocket? You know, and he said, that's what history is to me. Is It's, it's fascinating. Every, it touches every part of our lives. And so he is now teaching his kids with this enthusiasm and, and wonder about history that uh, they'll never get anywhere else. So that's the power of planning. And you can really change somebody's lives. And part of what we do is we, use, we look, look at the human capital of our clients. So in addition to the financial capital, which we all look at, I think it's important to do the human capital. Sometimes you can help them have a better career, change careers, or, or just you know, get better at the career they're in. So. so do you advise them on like career move? I mean, obviously there's like the financial aspect of it. Uh, I, I, I try to... I try to help my clients have the best life they can have. And what and they decide what that is. You know, what's an ideal life? So when my life when my clients tell me what their ideal life is, I try to help them achieve it. That's the power of planning. Most of the time they would never have done it without the plan. This this guy would have never, you know, it would have been sixty at least. He didn't even know he could retire at sixty before the first plan. 
And then, uh, you know, he was planning on working until he was 66 or so and then retiring and, you know, not ever teaching. And so when I told him 60, he said, maybe I'll get to finally teach. And then when I heard that, I said, okay, let's do that at 52. So that's powerful. And every client you meet with, they generally have things in their lives that they would like to do but never thought they could do or they, you know, don't think they can afford to do it or family situations don't allow them to do it. So planning is helping them achieve the ideal life that they want to have. So that's pretty powerful. Thanks for listening and joining us in 2017. We'll see you again next year. Next year? It's, it's like a week away.